study in our uh, alphabetical study, we come to the letter U, and I'm going to talk to you this morning about universalism. Universalism. And by the way, since I'm not to the end of the alphabet, remember that as Gordon teaches, there are some weeks that he has to be gone, and I'm going to come back and, <laughs> and finish up, you know, WXYZ and all of those. Universalism is important that we understand or think about it because it is that belief that in the end of everything, everyone is going to be saved. No one will be in hell for eternity. Either that or some people will be gone and out of existence, body, soul, and spirit. So universalism has always been with us. It's one of those beliefs that is really kind of a, it's shocking to think that there is a hell that lasts forever. Surely a loving God wouldn't do that. So that somehow it must be that in the end, even those who have to go to hell for a while don't have to go there forever. And that then eventually everyone will be in God's presence or they will be annihilated and gone and not exist anymore. When you think about it, uh, I think most lost people would kind of like to believe in universalism. As a matter of fact, they probably do. And uh, number one, they don't want to believe in hell, of course. Uh, they might like to believe in just annihilation, that once you die, that's it. There's no life after death. Of course, there's a lot of people who believe that. But who wants to believe that there's a hell and you spend eternity there and you know you're not going, or you know you are going there, you're not going to heaven, you know? Somebody doesn't want to do that. Let me, uh, let me just kind of spend a little bit of time first in uh, getting our minds in the frame of mind when we think about lost people and eternity and so forth. In, in pulling uh, some notes out of my file about universalism, I noticed that it wasn't that, too, that many years ago that uh, one article I had said there were 5 billion people on the earth. And uh, I looked it up uh, yesterday, and now there's 7.1 billion people. And as a matter of fact, in this article, it said that within the lifetime of some of us, the population of the earth will be 10 billion. And you might think, oh, no, it couldn't go from 5 to 10 within our lifetime, could it? I mean, and here we're already up to 7.1 just a few years later. So, yes, it, it can. It's increasing. And so when, we think of, when you think about a billion people and 10 billion people, maybe by the time the Lord comes, let's say, or something like that, and then all of the other people who have lived throughout the centuries, and of course, it, the figure's probably true, there's more people actually alive today on the earth than ever lived in history past, because population is, growing, is increasing. So they pointed out, one billion days, if you can think of days, we only have 29 days this month, you know, one billion days ago, the earth was not even created yet. That's a lot of days. When you think back to, you know, all the way back to, uh, you know, either from 4,000 B.C. to 10,000, 
the earth wasn't even created. One billion hours ago, Genesis was not written yet. One billion seconds ago, uh, there was no atom bomb invented yet. And yet, uh, I also looked this up, that uh, our government spends $10 billion every day. $10 billion every day. That's amazing, isn't it? And yet, one billion days ago, the earth wasn't even created. That's a lot to stack up in one day time. And that, this older article uh, claimed, and uh, it's not from a conservative Christian point of view, but it, it claimed that uh, in the earth of those people, a third of them claim Christianity, a third of them uh, are unresponsive to the gospel, and a third of them never heard the gospel. I doubt that a third of them are Christian, though. <laughs> to claim Christianity and to be Christian, of course, would, would be two different things. For example, in the, in the Middle East, only one in every 3,600 people claim to be Christian. In, in communist Asia, one in 1,000. In, in Roman Catholic Europe, only one in 900 claim to be Christian. So the world is changing even when it comes to what they think of, them, of themselves. So the question becomes, are all of those heathen people lost? And, and most of them will die without ever hearing the gospel. And so they will die lost. And our Bible tells us that if a person dies lost, they spend eternity in hell. Because they did not receive Jesus Christ as Savior. So when you believe like we believe, because that's what the Bible says plainly, uh, then the pressure kind of seems like it's on us to explain how how can a just God do this? You know, how, how, can, this, how can this be so? So in, in one uh, survey of Christian people, only 37% say that those who have never heard the gospel will be lost forever. So I'm not talking about lost, I'm not talking about non-Christian people. 37% of Christian people uh, believe that there's some kind of universalism. And 42% uh, only believed in a literal hell, that if there is a hell, that it's, it's actually literal where people are in torment. So the stakes are pretty high is all I'm saying. When we talk about universalism and talk about uh, uh, whether it is true or not, of course... I, I realize I'm preaching to the choir, and as I say to you, is it true or not, all you have to do is say, is that what the Bible really teaches? And if the Bible teaches that people are lost in hell forever, uh, then we believe it. But uh, we do have to think about this a little bit. Even within evangelicalism, that is, and let me... <laughs> You know, by the way, I have my March article is out over here, on, and the title of it is The Christian in an Election Year. <laughs> so, so it'll help you out. Because to tell you the truth, I would, I would rather be celebrating March Madness and watching the NCAA tournament than uh, Super Tuesday anytime on March 1st. But anyway, uh, you know, there's a big... Uh, 
there's a big category nowadays called called evangelicalism, right? I can remember in my lifetime when, as a as a young person, I would hear preaching about the mainline denominations because in those from Roman Catholic to Anglicanism to all of them, there there it got to be where there wasn't a lot of preaching of the gospel in the mainline denominations. And a person could grow up in church in the mainline denominations and not be saved and, and, and uh, you know, be under whatever preaching was there and never come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people who were converted in preaching were converted out of mainline denominations. So I, I give the suggestion in my article folks that it may be that evangelicalism is the new mainline denomination that it's a mile wide and an inch deep that everybody and everything claims nowadays to be evangelical so consider the evangelical vote for example you know now we're talking about who, who can win the evangelical vote but when you look at who they're trying to win and who the evangelical vote is you're scratching your head saying evangelical but but I'll remind you that if you claim to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are an evangelical in, that, in the proper sense of that word. The evangel is the gospel. Evangel means good news. It means the gospel. So if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are uh, an evangelical. And, and by the way, in the 50s, how many of you remember the 50s? Oh, yeah, of course you do. <laughs> Um, I, I don't remember 1950, I was born then, you know, but I, I do remember the other years. Uh, but the term evangelical came into being because we had to designate somebody who was actually born again as opposed to somebody who just called themselves Christian. Because there's a lot of things called Christian, but they knew nothing about being born again. So how do you distinguish those two? And, and basically, they came up with the term evangelical so that you could call someone who, is, who claims to be a born-again Christian, which is a redundancy. You shouldn't have to say that, but you have to. <laughs> what kind of Christian are you? I'm one that's born again. I'm an evangelical. Well, then, it was, by the way, boy, I'm chasing this rabbit, but I'm going to catch him and kill him, so hold on. Even as evangelicalism then came into vogue, so many, so many people claimed it that those who believed in the fundamentals of the faith had to, in a way, separate a little bit from that and say, yeah, but I'm a fundamentalist evangelical because I still believe in the literal teaching of the Word of God and so forth, and I believe in a literal heaven and a hell and all of that. And not all evangelicals did. So by the time we get to our day and age right now, evangelicalism is, like I said, a mile wide and an inch deep. And, and, and you have to be very careful, though you are one by definition. Uh, you may not always be one in uh, political polling <laughs> or whatever, because they're after them. All right, well, within then the broader spectrum of evangelicalism, there are, there are various different views as to life after death, believe it or not. For example, there is what, what is called pure mortalism. 
meaning you have a mortal life and that is it. And when you die, you're done. There is no existence after your death. There are evangelicals who believe this. And there are cults who believe this too, you know. Uh, and so when you, when you die, that's it. Is that what the Bible teaches? I think we would say no. But uh, there are a lot of people that wish the Bible did. And a lot of people who uh, live that way, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when you die, it's the end of everything. I mean, Paul said, we sorrow not as others that have no hope when it comes to burying our loved ones. Why? Because we do believe we'll see them again. We do believe that there is a time when we'll be reunited. But if you didn't believe that, then you go to the graveside uh, mourning because your relationship to that person is totally gone forever. Uh, so there's pure mortalism. Then there is conditional immortality within this, and that just means some people will live forever and others will not. Some, some that know Christ as Savior will. Maybe others will be annihilated in hell. They won't exist after that. Or maybe there's not a hell at all. Uh, there are cults, of course, who believe this. You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses believe you have to be within the special groups. Uh, 144,000 will will actually live in the New Jerusalem, and then there will be others who join their cult but because they have more than 144,000. But then the rest will just die, and that's it. There have always been those who believe, there are some that believe that if you're, that the term born again, uh, uh, Herbert W. Armstrong, for example, in the old worldwide church of God, believed that, that you die and that's it unless you get resurrected and the resurrection is you being born again. So to him, there was not being born again in this life. There was being born again at resurrection time. Some will be born again and some will not. So that's kind of conditional immortality. Some of you will be immortal. Some of you will not be. Then there is annihilation. Now, annihilation me is that view that hell is real, but hell doesn't last but a short moment. Because thinking of it as a real fire, which it is, but I mean as an earthly fire, let's say. When you throw something in an earthly fire, what happens to it? It burns up and it's gone. Kind of like a piece of paper. You throw a piece of paper in a fire and you can watch it for a minute, but then it's gone. It just kind of disintegrates. So there's always been that view of hell. You, you can, on the one hand, choose, and I'll come back to this in a little bit, you can choose to believe there is no hell or that hell is not a fire, not a place of torment. Or you can believe that there is a hell, it is a place of torment, but when a person is cast into it, in a moment they're gone because hellfire basically disintegrates them, burns them up. Would it be a, do you know the name John Stott, the great English theologian, S-T-O-T-T, -T, maybe you've read a commentary by him? He believed in that. Clark Pinnock, who, who defended biblical inerrancy, believes in that. So there are a lot of people who believe in annihilationism, that that's what's going to happen. Then there's more of a metaphorical sense of believing in hell, 
where you believe that hell is real, but it's not torment. You are simply separated over here apart from God. And you have some kind of existence forever, but it's not in hell. So is that a type of universalism? It might be in the sense that everyone's going to live and no one's going to be tormented in hell, but it's merely a separation. And some very good men believe in a metaphorical sense. J.I. Packer, another very famous British theologian. And I, and I will tell you that, uh, sadly, uh, that Billy Graham believes that there's not a literal hell, that hell is a, simply a separation. I imagine that his son does believe in literal hell, but I know that, that Billy Graham Sr. did not. Isn't that a shock to believe? And yet he's preaching all of his life, and people are truly getting saved. And I think he's saved, he, he has led a lot of people away from a hell, whether he wants to believe in it or not. Uh, I've heard him preach it, so I know that he does. And I've read, his, I've read stuff about it that, that he's written. As a matter of fact, I was, I was teaching once in my church in Fort Collins. It was on a Wednesday night. We were talking about doctrines and and I happened to, on that night, talk about hell. And a man came in who was a visitor, never been in the service before, on a Wednesday night. He and his wife, if I remember right. And uh, I, I happened to mention that. And I always hesitate to when we have visitors. I don't mind doing it here in a Sunday school class. Because visitors take that as, as some kind of a mean accusation against Billy Graham. But I'm telling you, I, I know this is true. This man was a medical doctor who happened into our church that night. And he stayed around afterwards, and he talked to me, and he said, you know, your reference about, about Graham, he said, my father was a medical doctor too and was Billy Graham's medical assistant. And he said, I happen to know that what you're saying is true. And so, so I'm, I'm pointing out good men can hold to something like this. And... They would argue to to the end that this is what the Bible teaches. I mean, obviously, he believes in the Word of God. And I, I love Billy Graham. I, let me tell you. Uh, you know, he, he has kept himself morally pure. He's kept himself financially right. He's, he's, he's had a testimony to his dying day, and he's still alive, of course. But, I mean... Uh, you know, you've got to appreciate And I know many people who have been saved at Billy Graham Crusades. Matter of fact, when he came to Denver once and our kids were just little ones, I, I took the kids and went just so that my kids can say to their kids someday, I attended a Billy Graham crusade when I was a kid. And they did. But I also had disagreements with his ecumenicalism that I couldn't have participated in myself. But, but still, that particular doctrine... Uh, uh, is always a shocker. Well, there, there just happens to be that that good people have believed in that. Now, if we move outside of um, Christianity, there are all kinds of world religions and cults and various different things like that that, of course, believe in universalism. Hinduism, all the New Age movements and so forth, believe that you're going to return to nature you know, nature is kind of God, and you return to the oneness of the universe, and you become one again with the universe. And if they happen to believe in reincarnation, then you cycle through the, through the nature and through universe, and you live forever. 
and everyone does. And if you have bad karma or whatever, then you have to be a frog instead of a horse or something. I don't know, you know, next time around because you, you know, you're not, uh, and that's about the only, you know, punishment that there is. There are theistic evolution, uh, theistic religions that have believed this. Uh, parts of the Catholic Church, there have always been parts of it that believe in this. Um, even, you know, when we came to Vatican II in the 60s, they lightened up their view on a lot of things in the 60s, so that Vatican II, as it's called, Vatican I was in the 1600s. So Vatican II... Pope John the 23rd in the in the 60s lightened up on a lot of things and uh, one of them for example was that missions was defined as helping other religions understand that they too will be saved that was a huge change in Roman Catholic doctrine uh, very ecumenical in that sense and so forth course then origin back if you go back to the uh, uh, second century AD uh, at the beginning of the Catholic Church he believed in a universalism but beyond beyond that there have been uh, all kinds of cults as I have said and now uh, you know you might know the name in our lifetime Brian McLaren and Rob Bell uh, who have been evangelicals but they are the ones now really pushing that uh, a loving God would not send anyone to a literal hell. A loving God just could not do it. And as a matter of fact, I think it was, uh, it was one of the two, McLaren or Rob Bell, who, who called the very idea that God would send his son to die on a cross to save people, he called it cosmic child abuse. Can you imagine that an evangelical accusing God of cosmic child abuse because he had his son die on the cross for other people. And because he doesn't believe that it was necessary uh, for that. So what I want to do with the uh, 15 or 20 minutes that we have left is, is remind you of, I think, seven different doctrines that would be greatly affected if universalism were true uh, in our Bible. And the first one, then, is the Incarnation. Because consider, you know, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. But if you don't need to believe on the name of the Son of God to escape hell, why did Jesus come? If everyone is going to be saved in the end, is it just to spare you of a purgatory just to spare you of uh you know an inconvenience for the for a while why did jesus come if universalism is true really uh god had a plan for everybody in some other way anyway so even the incarnation uh is true uh is true and if it is universalism has a hard time secondly what about the trinity after all, I mean, uh, 
the Holy Spirit, we're told in John 16, convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come. In other words, in the age in which we live, we call it this age of grace, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict the world of judgment that is coming. But if there is no judgment like that that is coming, what is he convicting the world of? And what is, the, what is the reason for it? As well as what is the reason for Jesus even coming to this world and dying on a cross anyway? Why have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in a relationship to this world if universalism is true? And for those people who think that God is just such a merciful, loving God that he would never send anyone to hell, then basically everyone who dies, no matter how bad they have been, plays on God's sympathy, and when they die, God feels sorry for them and says, okay, come on in. And that's the only basis for it, the only basis for having eternal life. So the Trinity uh, becomes a confusing thing. Uh, but thirdly, how about God's character? God the Father, then, how about his character? Does he have the right to do this? Does he have the right to condemn people forever as God? And why is it, if somebody asks you, why is it that God, why is it that God sends people to hell? Why is there a hell? Why do people go there? What kind of answer do you give? What kind of answer do you give if somebody says, I think I'll be fine and I'll get into heaven when I die. But they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. Don't you, don't you give them an answer somewhere related to the fact that God is holy? And, and since God is holy, he will not allow what has not been redeemed or what is not holy into his presence, right? And so since sin came into this world through Adam, and by the way, I don't even think I have that on here, creation, but we could add creation to our list, just the whole story of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, the creation to the fall, and what is the fall all about if nobody's going to be lost eternally anyway? But if God is holy, can he, does he have the right to separate someone from his presence forever, and, and in that separation there be torment? And, and pain. Does God have the right to do it? And when we're talking on that level, we have to be very careful, don't we? Because who, who are we as the created being to say anything against God who is our creator, Paul says in Romans you know, 9, 10, and 11. Who are we? To, who is the, the, the vessel to say to the potter, I don't like the way you're making me? <laughs> you know. Not only that, but would his goodness allow it? And this is where McLaren and Rob Bell and others like this come from, and that is, if God is a good God, how can he do it? How can he let somebody go to hell forever? And uh, not only that, but doesn't that infringe upon man's freedom? I mean, he gives us free choice, but then there's a point where we don't have that free choice anymore. It's taken away. Sorry, you have to go to hell and you have to stay there, whether you like it or not. So all of these questions about God's character really come into play here, and especially about his goodness. Can God be good? But our answer is, it is because God is good. 
that sinners can't come into his presence. It is because he is holy and just and right that he told Adam and Eve before they ever sinned that this would be the consequence if you do. All right? So, God's character. Um, fourthly, biblical authority. What does the Bible say? And I'll come back to this uh, in a couple more points from now, but uh, does the Bible uh, say th this and teach this, or, or does it not? Um, uh, there are other religions that teach different ways. And so if you don't like the view of an eternal hell where lost people go, you can always find a religion that doesn't teach that, and their holy books don't teach that. But the Bible teaches it. And I'll come back to that in a minute, as I said. So uh, the, 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 the authority of the Bible is questioned here at this point. It, is, what the, is what Christianity teaches right, or is what Hinduism teaches is right, or some other religion? And then, fifthly, the nature of salvation. Uh, do you need to be saved? We have, by the way, in our lifetime, um, a liberation theology. The most famous preacher of this is Reverend Jeremiah Wright in Chicago. But liberation theology has come out of South America, actually, mostly, which is a Catholic theology, you know, a continent, and it was, it was uh, settled by uh, Catholic settlers and so forth. And so, it, you know, we send missionaries to South America to win people to Christ, and they have to deal with the Catholicism that has permeated that whole continent. But because they have been so poor and because people in, in South America are, would like to escape uh, their economic plight and so forth, salvation has kind of turned into being delivered from your oppression. So salvation becomes God delivering you out of your poverty and out of your oppression from people who are oppressing you and so forth. And, and they might, for example, say, we have the example of the Israelites in Egypt and God brought them out through the Red Sea and, and delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And what that's a story of is God will do that with any oppressed people. God is always on the side of oppressed people. And when he delivers them out of that oppression, that is salvation. And so liberation theology has become salvation is to be liberated. So it was very easily adapted to black theology in our country and various types of theologies in other countries where some group of people saw themselves as oppressed and the preaching then of the gospel is basically to relieve people of that oppression, not to necessarily give them eternal life. And I, I don't want to go too far down that road, but let me ask you then, what gospel does Reverend Jesse Jackson preach? What gospel does Reverend Al Sharpton preach? Why are these guys called Reverend and you never, never hear them talk about the gospel? Because this is their gospel. It's a liberation theology, and that's too bad, you know. So, uh, 
the whole nature of salvation here is uh, brought into question if there's a literal hell and you have to be saved and born again, as the Bible talks about. Then sixthly, the nature of hell itself, and this is more really to the point, is there a hell? Uh, open your Bible to Revelation 14. I know you're saying, when are we going to open our Bible? All right. Revelation 14 Uh, if you know this book and you know the chronology of what's happening here, it's in chapter 13 where the Antichrist and then the false prophet set up an image and you have to bow down to the image or you'll be lost. And at the end of chapter 13, you'll see the number 666, three score and 603 score and six. And the mark described in the verses above that is the mark of the beast. You understand? So those who, who receive the mark of the beast are those who are going to be worshiping the Antichrist and his false prophet and this image. And once you do that, then you have sided with the Antichrist, not with the real Christ, okay? So notice the pretty harsh words for those who do this in verse 9 of chapter 14. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. In other words, let me stop and say, somehow, and, and this is what God is doing, is that when you receive the mark of the beast, you have made your decision to reject Jesus Christ in the tribulation period. And once you do that, there's no going back. There's no conviction of your sin anymore. And those who receive that mark, these verses say, they will be in hell. Now notice the description. Verse 10 says, the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels in the presence of the Lamb. Now, first of all, hell is real. And hell, secondly, is hot. <laughs> I like to say, if you want a threefold description of hell, it is real, it is hot, and it is long. It is real, it is, it is hot, that is, it is a flame of fire, and it is for eternity. It is long. So here is the wrath of God poured out without mixture. It is fire and brimstone. And verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment ascended up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast in his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. We could go to chapter 20, of course, in the white throne judgment. And, and uh, in the last part of that chapter, death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And so there is a lake of fire. It is fire and brimstone. And so this is what the, the Bible says. Now, um, you see the expression in verse 11, forever and ever. That expression comes from a, a Greek word, ionos or ionios, depending on how it's used. It means eternal or everlasting. 
But that word is repeated in the New Testament over and over, and it's, it could be translated forever, as here, or it could be translated eternally or eternal. So let me, the, the question becomes, what does that expression mean, forever and ever? Eternal, sometimes it, it, it could be expressed into the eternities, you know. What does that mean? How everlasting is that? And those who would deny that there's an everlasting punishment for unbelievers would try to translate this phrase in other ways. Maybe for a while, <laughs> for a long time, but not forever, and so forth. Let me, let me uh, though, uh, give you a short summary of how that word is used in the New Testament. In other words, it, when you have this ion, or ionios as a, an adjective, a modifier of a word, it's not always just everlasting fire. But for example, most of the time the word is used, it is used with the word life, everlasting life. So if your life that you have through Jesus Christ is everlasting, the same word describes the fire that is everlasting. Not only that, Romans 16, 26, God is the everlasting God. It describes God's etern eternality. In 2 Timothy 1, 9, Christ is said to be eternal. In Hebrews 9, 14, the Spirit is said to be eternal. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all eternal God. And the same word is used to describe the eternal fire of hell. There's the eternal covenant in Hebrews 13, 20, the covenant God made with Abraham. There in 2 Peter, there's the everlasting kingdom. In Revelation 14, the everlasting gospel. And in 2 Thessalonians 1, 9, there's everlasting destruction. And in 2, 16, everlasting consolation. So the same word that describes your eternal life describes eternal hell. So how, what happens when we begin to argue about <laughs> saying that this word doesn't mean that hell is, is forever. Maybe then God isn't forever. Maybe heaven isn't forever. Maybe your salvation is not forever. You begin to question everything, see, is the problem. Well, hell, hell is a very disconcerting thing, and I don't, I don't blame people for being alarmed by it. As a matter of fact, you should be alarmed by it. <laughs> you should be scared to death by it. And you ought to want to find... God's solution to it. The last or number seven, the point that I had is just truth and reason. Truth and reason. If you're going to say you're a Christian, evidently you are saying you believe the Scripture. The Scripture is the constitution for the Christian. It's, it's kind of like saying, well, I, I want to be an American, but I don't, I don't want to believe I don't want to live under the American Constitution. We have a lot of people doing that, but I mean, you know, it's the same conundrum. You know, if you're a Christian, you believe in the Christian scriptures. This is the basis of it. So why do you want to still claim to be a Christian and then deny such an obvious truth in the Christian scriptures? That's why I call this truth and reason. We don't like those people who rewrite history, do we? Who, who say, well, I, I don't like the way history happened, so I, we're going to rewrite it so that our history books say it a different way and say it a lot kinder than it really was. 
And what do we say to those people? It's not truthful. Say it like it is. Give us the truth. We ought to be saying that, too, about this. And so whether we're talking about the incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the ascension of Christ, or whether we're talking about eternal heaven and eternal hell, we have to take the Bible for what it is. My grandmother, bless her heart, uh, was a good Methodist lady all her life. This is my Ozark grandmother in Springfield. But she could not bring herself to believe in a literal hell. And, and basically, here's a good woman with a good heart who just looked at the doctrine and said, I just, can't, I just can't bring myself to believe that that's the way it will be. But what I'm saying is truth and reason have to overcome that emotion at that moment. And you have to say, if it's true, and if that's what the Bible teaches, and I've committed myself to the God of this Bible, I have to accept it. And I think that God would say to us, then if you accept it, and this is what you believe, then go tell those who are going there that they don't have to go there. You remember I've used this illustration, I know, in preaching many times of, about uh, William Booth who founded the Salvation Army. Talk about something that has long since departed from the founder. But back in the 1800s, William Booth preached in London, England on the street corners, and he had a band playing and everything, and, uh, and he preached. And, and in his biography, he gives this testimony that he was passing out literature on the street in London about, about hell. And he handed it to a guy, and a guy stopped, and he looked at it, and he realized that this was teaching that there's a hell, and, and, and people really go there when he died. And he said the guy, the guy handed it back to Booth, and he said, if I believe that, he said, I wouldn't rest day or night until I'd told everyone I could ever tell not to go to that place. And he walked off. And William Booth said, that changed my life, to be confronted with that truth and what I'm doing about it. That's why I say maybe if he'd look at everything that organization does these days, he might be a little shocked by them too. So uh, let me read, read something in conclusion. In a, in a book called Vital Theological Issues that Dallas Seminary put out some time ago, Ron Blue wrote this article on universalism, and he, and he ended it this way. Are, are the heathen lost? Are, are several basic exceeding questions these? Number one, the question of God is... Our, the character of God is questioned. Is Christ the only way? This is a challenge to Christology. The necessity of the cross is questioned. Did Christ have to die? This is a challenge to soteriology. The depravity of man is questioned. Is man inherently sinful? This is a challenge to biblical anthropology. The judgment of sin is questioned. Is not evil relative? This is a challenge to homardiology, doctrine of sin. The role of the church is questioned. Is the church God's unique witness? This is a challenge to ecclesiology. The culmination of history is questioned. Is there a future reckoning? This is a challenge to eschatology. The seemingly innocent question strikes at the very foundations of all of our theology this doctrine of universalism. So, just so you have it a little bit fresh in your mind and you remember it again, uh, that there are people who believe this. And as much as it's difficult to believe uh, that people will go to hell and be there forever without Jesus Christ, the Bible teaches it, and it ought to really make us uh, witnesses for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I hope it does. Let's pray together. Father, thank you then for our uh, lesson today and, and remembering these things. 
And uh, Father, uh, I always search my heart and wonder if I've spoken in an ill way about anyone, and I don't intend to, but I, would, I just want to speak the truth about things that are said and things that are real. And help us, Father, to take that truth of your word and help us to preach it as sincere witnesses of Jesus Christ and of your truth. And may your Holy Spirit be with us and help us to do that. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thank you for being here this morning.